episode 115 of Off Script with Trish Close, intimate interviews with interesting people. Joining me today via Skype, I have Daniel Aldrich. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You are a professor, political science, public policy, and urban affairs, and the director of security and resilience studies program at Northeastern University. I have to take a breath after all that. It's a bit much. It, it's a lot, but um, I'm <laughs> super excited to have you here today. As I emailed you, um, my sweet little community of Southern Oregon has absolutely, we're in the middle of a tragedy. Uh, wildfire ripped through two of our towns in the Rogue Valley, and we have thousands of people displaced who've lost absolutely everything. So I'm just sort of scrambling to find answers to questions that I don't even know really what to ask. Uh, before I get into that, though, um, I do just want to mention this. You're an award-winning author. You've published five books, more than 60 peer-reviewed articles, and written op-eds for The New York Times, CNN. Along, you've appeared on media outlets like CNBC, MSNBC, NPR. Um, your research has been funded by the Fulbright Foundation, Abe Foundation, National Science Foundation, and you have carried out more than five years of fieldwork in Japan, India, Africa, and the Gulf Coast. So. Highly qualified, sir. I hope so. Okay, uh, before we get into it, uh, you're the Director of Security and Resilience Studies Program. Explain to me resilience studies, what is that? Yeah, it's the recognition that we can't prepare for every shock. So you could have, a, for example, a seawall at your coastal city to keep you off from tsunami, but maybe there'll be an earthquake that hits. Or you could have a police officer in front of the building and the power will go out in the hospital and it will have several lives lost. So there's always going to be shocks that we can't prepare for. Resilience is the recognition that communities and institutions have their own power to bounce back from a major crisis. And that power, that ability to bounce back is dependent on things like social ties, connections, uh, vertical and horizontal ties. Mm -hmm. So our studies help our students understand they can't just prepare for obvious things, the known unknowns, as certain people have said. They've got to be, be ready to have their institutions, their communities uh, ready to do all kinds of stuff they, they can't envision right now. You know, right now we're in the pandemic in 2020. Who knows in 2025 what kind of shocks we'll be facing? Exactly. I was thinking about that word resilient today. We have some community members in Southern Oregon that survived the, um, the Paradise Fire just south of us and have moved back up here and are now facing this exact same thing. Humans right. are resilient, aren't we? I think so, and and that's good news, right? Most most of us get through shocks okay. The bad news, though, is that for some communities, whether it's communities like your colleagues who have now been through multiple fires, mm -hmm. as people in Japan who've been through multiple earthquakes, at some point, the resources that you're drawing on can get really thin. So you may be running out of savings, for example. Maybe you've been out of a job now since February with COVID-19. Uh, maybe you're running out of government benefits or running out of your own savings. Right. Or maybe the connections that you have that help, help you get through, maybe they're also feeling pretty tired by now mm -hmm. of nine months mm -hmm. being stuck indoors. Uh, so yes, we are pretty resilient. Unfortunately, resilience has its limits. A hundred percent. Quick question for you. How did you get into this? Was this, was this something you wanted to do growing up? You're like, I know what I want to <laughs> be when I grow up. No, not at all. Actually, I got into this because our home and everything we own was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Wow. So yeah, we had moved from Boston down to New Orleans in July 
had about a month of pretty good times in New Orleans in a community called Lakeview, mm -hmm. which literally became Lakeview when the levees broke in. Something like 100 million gallons of water came through in about an hour and flooded our home, all the neighbors' homes as well, and everything we owned, except for, I think we had one bag of, of toys for our kids that, that survived. Uh, everything else was destroyed, paper records, hard drives, our other car, uh, of course, the house was destroyed, everything inside it. So that really made me think, you know, what is it about going through a shock and then getting through the other side? Is it a experience that I'm going to have by myself? Is it a communal thing? I began to wonder also who's going to save us. I had this vision in my head that either the U.S. government was going to save us or somehow the market was going to save us, right? As a good capitalist, right? At the end of the day, maybe our insurance will pay for all this damage. And of course, as is always the case, neither the U.S. government nor insurance actually helped at all in that process. Uh, all the aid that we got, all the help that we got, moral, financial, spiritual, came from people in our network, people people, wow. people that we knew, people that we barely knew. And that really pushed me in this new direction, trying to understand, you know, is my experience of getting through a shock because of these ties? Is that unique? Am I the only person dealing with this? Or other mm -hmm. Gulf Coast residents also drawing now on their friends, friends of friends, great grandmas. There are churches and synagogues and mosques and 4-H clubs and that kind of stuff. And that really was a start back in 2005. So you really are qualified. I mean, you've gone through this firsthand, firsthand tragedy. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we did better than other people. We all got out okay, right? None of us sure. had any physical injuries. We had neighbors who died of heart attacks, for example, in our old neighborhood. Uh, someone was trapped under the roof. So we, we felt pretty fortunate, actually, to get out with ourselves intact and our kids were okay. Right. And, you know, we were pretty mobile. So we, we again, talking about resources that we had to draw on that rebuilding process, we were able to get out of New Orleans, uh, get a new job and, and start over again. Did you find that when you were saying, you know, the government's going to save us or this is going to, did you find at the end of the day, really, it was you saving you? You know, I wish I was Superman, right? I wish I had that ability to have, you right. know, the cape on. And actually, not really. I think my wife and I were in shock for about a week and a half, at least two weeks. We could have sort of sat around with our kids. Just, you know, kids are running around in circles, right? They're, they've been trapped in a car for a while and trapped in a hotel room mm -hmm. with us. And, you know, we, we really didn't have, I think, a lot of the experience or skills to recognize, well, what do we need to do now? Okay, so we lost our home. My job is not, Tulane was not working that semester at all. Uh, the kids aren't in school. The school began on Monday, which that Monday never came right. for us. So we got two kids are supposed to be in school, an adult supposed to be working, he doesn't have a job. What are we going to do? And it, it was really when friends began calling, colleagues began calling and saying, hey, I heard you guys lost your house. You need a place to stay. We have this apartment. Uh, we actually had multiple apartments for houses. We had offers from schools to take our kids when they heard what happened to us. Mm. We had various institutions raising money to help re you know, restock our house. So I would say it wasn't us. Uh, you know, the resilience that, I, that we found really came from the community around sure. us. Sure. Um, and that's a question that so many people are looking at right now, even if not just in our community, but those communities that are being devastated right now by, by the hurricane, what's next, right? What do you do next? In your field work, what have you found some of the biggest challenges in rebuilding? Is there any sort of central theme when it comes to that? Rebuilding is painfully slow. That's the first thing. You know, we all have these expectations that, okay, well, I've got private insurance or I right. got, you know, the road home in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina or whatever the promises are from the government. I'll be back in my house in five, five weeks, maybe five months. Honestly, it, you know, if you know, fell in New Orleans, it's taken about a decade for most of New Orleans to recover. And of course, it's a very different New Orleans now than it was. Sure. It's different demographically. It's different in terms of the physical layout. Uh, even in my old neighborhood, actually, in Lakeview, there are still areas 
where there are blank spots, there are there's slabs where homes used to be. So, you know, even people who are lucky enough to have private insurance, and of course we can talk about this, private insurers often want to do their very best to hold back that money. Uh, you know, my, my colleagues, for example, we actually turned out our insurance didn't cover the damage to our house, different, long story, uh, but our friends who had flood insurance, their insurance company told them, no, 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 when your roof ripped off, that's water from above, that's rain damage. And they had to go to court for three years to get any money from them at all. And what? I wish I could tell you that was, yeah, I wish I could tell you that's a rare story. I heard that a lot that insurers in New Orleans do their very, very best to make life drawing that check really painful. Now, maybe there are some insurance companies out there mm -hmm. who really are altruistic and you know they're really to help, but my friends who had insurance, we didn't have insurance it turned out, but who did have insurance, they spent years in court trying to get any amount of money back for their homes. Uh, and again, when you have a hurricane and a flood, the, the insurance company can tell you as they did, well, look, that's rain damage. We don't cover rain damage. Wow, that's just, that makes me feel a little sick. I heard from a friend today um, her son lost everything, they had insurance, and they were denied FEMA assistance because they had insurance. So it's just- Right, very common, yes, that's right. So yeah, if it, so in fact, I mentioned earlier that we thought FEMA would save us. FEMA thought we had private insurance and our private insurance didn't cover it. So it took us about, I don't know, eight or nine months of, of wow. daily faxing, and FEMA still used fax back in 2005, to finally straighten out that we got something from FEMA, but that wasn't until 2006, right? Uh, over six months after the actual shock. So it's it's the the bureaucratic paperwork is, is, is ungodly. It's hard to imagine, honestly, when you have just lost your stuff, your home, someone's been injured, in your family, you're in a hospital, and you're trying to deal with this impenetrable bureaucracy when you can't get a hold of one person who's there from week to week, you can't get a hold of someone who's going to help you out. Uh, and honestly, I think for a lot of us, there's this feeling of despair mm -hmm. beyond just the anger at, you know, the company itself or FEMA, just feeling just like this is, a, we're trapped in a, in a sort of a Kafka-esque bureaucratic nightmare. Exactly. Do those hurdles exist elsewhere or is that just here in the United States? Our insurance companies, honestly, are some of the worst that I've heard about. Uh, in Japan, for example, they're they're pretty good. Uh -huh. there, there's actually, a, uh, for example, an agricultural cooperative called Japan Agriculture that actually insures farmers' homes during earthquakes, mm -hmm. of all things. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I did interviews with them, they told me within about a month, they got a check, the, pe the people came through, surveyed the home, gave them a check, and they were ready to go. Uh, so right. it, it may be that North, North American insurance companies are not known for their customer service post-disaster. Yikes. Jeff was telling me about, um, uh, Jeff Slagelmetsch, who I, I just interviewed this week, was telling me about a community in Japan that actually they put a moratorium on rebuilding for six months yes. in an effort to not recreate those same vulnerabilities. Um, yeah. I know for a lot of people who have lost everything, that idea is just like, what? I can't wait six months. Yeah, it's really hard. So this is great. That, that was Kobe. And he's exactly right. In yeah. 1995, they had a massive earthquake. Uh, about 7,000 people were killed. Uh, Long-term damage to the economy. A lot of port companies moved away. So the port lost its importance. Uh, a lot of things happened there that really damaged the economy. The government really took a local government, took a real chance and said, look, you know, we know we're in a vulnerable area. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of the streets are too narrow. A lot of elderly people are living by themselves. A lot of the firefighters couldn't even get through because there's so much debris that blocked not only water pressure, but even the truck itself. Mm -hmm. So let's rebuild a better Kobe. And people were not happy, obviously. No one wants to wait when you're living in a temporary, you know, if, you, if you've ever been in a FEMA trailer, right? That's about 20 feet by 10 feet. Uh, it's got formaldehyde. I mean, the same thing in Japan. It's called Kasachichutaku. It's a temporary shelter, same kind of thing. Small, hot in the summer, cold in the winter, 
aluminum sided box, but they told them, look, give us a chance to build a better city back. And they have. So they widened the streets. Mm -hmm. They put the elderly together in these shared homes that have private living quarters, but cooperative places where you eat and watch movies and hang out together. They built a better system for getting water to each of those individual areas where fire trucks could pull into. And they built a city that's really now ready for the next shock, right? So they have better signage, they have better drills. Um, they did take the time to make it better. It takes patience, right? And no one wants to hear, it'll be six months before the architects can come in or six months before they can clear the debris. But if you can do that, if you can take that breath, because think about it, right? The reason why we have these major disasters, whether it's a flooding disaster right now, whether it's an earthquake or a fire in Oregon or California, is because we're living in a vulnerable community, mm -hmm. vulnerable to something, right? Mm -hmm. So it might be there's a lot of dry brush nearby in California and Oregon, or in PG&E cases, really badly maintained wire electrical lines. Exactly. Uh, in, in New Orleans, in our case, is that we lived literally in a bowl under mm -hmm. sea level, mm -hmm. about 10 feet under sea level. And the levees were really crunky, really badly taken care of right. by the local committees that used the money they got to pay their own salaries rather than impressing uh, and building up those levees. So when you live in a vulnerable community and you rebuild as it was, and by the way, the sad thing is FEMA for many years insisted if you want to use federal government money after a shock, the only thing you can do with that is to rebuild as was. Don't get as crazy. Don't build something new built as was. So for a long time, you're literally recreating the scenario mm -hmm. that brought you to the disaster in the first place. So for example, after a tornado in Indiana, where we used to live, right, you put back mobile homes in low lying areas with bad anchoring and poor tree cover, right? Or you put near a riverbed or in New Orleans case, near a flooding river, the exact same structures that keep it as badly before. Or in California's case, you extend the limits of cities so far out right, that individuals are now living in the exurbs 10 miles from anyone else, all right, and you've got to get a fire truck out to save them, right? right? Even though they chose to build a place that's really far from water pressure, from quick response from an ambulance or from anyone else, and of course, that also means more than likely there's no neighbors nearby. So, you know, we've put these situations on ourselves. We've built houses in floodplains or mobile homes in low-lying areas or, mm -hmm. you know, put houses in exurbs. That's us. It's our choice. And if we take a moment, just a breath afterwards and think, yeah. if you want to build a society that's resilient, we got to start thinking what happened in the first place. Do that moratorium on what happened and try to do something different this time. So when the dust starts to settle and people are looking at rebuilding, actually, before I get to that question, if we are waiting, I mean, we're obviously going to have to wait now because it just, it even with talking to FEMA and insurance, it's going to be a while before people can even get in and start cleaning up and, and rebuilding. Is it our job as the community to take care of those folks in that meantime, that temporary period? You know, my advice always is you should take care of your own, right. right? You should never have to expect or hope that an outside NGO like the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or the FEMA would come in somehow like a white horse and save everybody. You know, we should be knowing our neighbors before the storm hits, before okay. the fire breaks out, before the flood comes. And of course, we should know them even better afterwards, right? Whether it's COVID-19 or not, we should be taking care of them, mm -hmm. right? So that means, you know, we saw all the time the, the best recoveries happened when neighbors work together, not only to help each other out in the obvious ways. So let's say you've got an spare bedroom and your neighbor needs a place to stay, yeah. right? Or you have an extra car, your neighbor's car got flooded. Those are obvious things, but even in not so obvious ways. For example, what vision do you have now, right? So you had this flood, you had this fire, you had this tornado. What vision do you have of a new city? How will you build a city that when that fire season comes around or hurricane season right now, right? I think we're on the Greek names now or out of, a, I, out of Roman names. It's crazy. So, yeah, so if you're living in the Gulf Coast and, and your house gets destroyed every six months to a year, 
what are you going to do this time? Right. When you, if, if you get the insurance money again, by the way, some insurance companies, of course, are raising rates also for fire-based damage as well. A lot of people are telling me in California and Oregon, it's going to be really hard to insure some of those homes that have been in areas, again, far from the civilization, far from fire truck response, far from other, other people, uh, because the likelihood of another fire with climate change is so high. So your, your question was, you know, is it our job? I, I think it is, honestly. And of course, the government has to come in. And that's the choice. If we're well organized, if the community has a vision for the future, it's much easier for the government to say, okay, great. You've got this vision for a, you know, a solidly built, strong, organized community with walking paths, uh, green spaces, areas that are cleared of trees or whatever. We're happy to support that. If everyone has different visions of what's going to happen, or no one cares about the community but only their own home, then you're going to rebuild chaotically and you're going to get back to where we were to begin with. It's going to be a hot mess. It's going to be a hot mess. A hot and maybe mess. too hot. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I just, I'm trying to put myself in someone's shoes that has lost everything. And I just, I can't imagine how overwhelming that what's next question is. You know, if I'm living in a temporary shelter, and the news media is telling me, go apply for assistance on FEMA, and all I have is my phone. I just, I don't even know where to begin, Daniel. It's just so overwhelming. Do you leave? Do you completely start over? You know, I know you you can talk a little bit about that, sustaining those social bonds. Like, I, I want the people who've lived in these towns to stay here. I don't want them to go anywhere. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, several things. You know, one is exactly that moment after a shock, right? When yeah. your home has been damaged, your business has been suspended, your kids are out of school. That's when you're thinking, okay, well, do I move someplace where there's no damage and it'd be really easy to rent an apartment or buy a house and just slip back into mainstream life? Or do I put in what will probably be years of work? And again, it could be fighting with your insurance company. It mm -hmm. could be fighting with the local city for zoning questions. Who knows the kind of fights you're going to face? What we found is individuals who have these stronger sense of place, a sense of community, a sense of bonds, those are the individuals willing to invest whatever it takes. So my, my most favorite story actually is about this is from Fukushima in Japan, which, as you know, had the nuclear power plant meltdowns mm -hmm. almost 10 years ago now. I spoke to an 80-year-old man there, Mr. Tanaka, who told me, I don't care about radiation. I don't care about, you know, any bad things. I want to go back to my home. I really don't care. You know, I love my home. I was born there. Mm. The graveyard where my wife is buried is there. My family has been there for three generations now. I want to go back. And I said, well, you know, isn't it a little risky? He said, look, I'd rather die there, right, than in some temporary shelter in some big city I've never been to before. Oh. I really miss my community. And that, that kind of spirit, that, that sense of place and belonging, you know, if people in a community have that, much easier then to organize that vision for the future, much easier to organize the resource distribution, right, to get people involved in how do we help a neighbor who really is in a bad way, whether mentally, physically, administratively, how do we help them out? If everyone's thinking, well, I don't really know my neighbors, I don't really belong here, I'm going to leave here in two or three years anyway, I'm, I'm a, maybe I'm a student here, right, we give them a nice story. Okay. I'm a student here, I'm leaving anyway. Okay, so for that student, probably investing time in a community and a sense of place and coming back doesn't make a lot of sense. New or actually, New Orleans is a good example. After Hurricane Katrina in 2005, Tulane lost almost the entire freshman class. All whatever it was, 3,000 students going to come in, mm -hmm. almost none came. But of the seniors, something like 90% came back. Right. Those seniors had been there for several years. They had their favorite bars, and they had their friends, and they liked the professors, whatever they liked there. For them, it made sense to come back. Right. They had those bonds. So for me, that's a really that's, that's a nice story. Right. In these communities where there is a strong sense of place and belonging, and they know their neighbors, I think that there's a better chance they will come back and work together. I don't know if you can answer this, but when it comes to the cleanup side of things, um, and I think we're in a different situation here because we had a fire come through. So the word hazardous is an understatement. We have things that have burned, there's chemicals, you're talking about dust, you know, and ash. 
and again, I don't know if you can answer this, but when it comes to cleaning up, that responsibility falls on who? City, county, individuals? Usually it's county or state, right? State. So there's, there's, probably, there's probably money coming in from the federal government. It's obviously been declared a disaster zone already. Yes. The governor asked for that. So that's good. That opens the floodgates for money to come in. Again, how that money is spent is a local decision. Right. So, again, it could be spending on cleaning up the debris, mm -hmm. remediating the soil, planting trees and building things as they were. If it's a really powerful mayor or governor with a vision of the future and a local community that's got solidarity, maybe it'll be a different future. Right. Again, one with more fire breaks or a right. more compact city. I mean, I can think of all things that I would do right now if I were a local decision maker in these areas. You know, the more compact the city is, the easier it is to defend those homes. When you have homes 20 miles apart. Right. It's every person, every homeowner hit for him or herself then spraying water mm -hmm. down on that fire. Mm -hmm. If we have, as we have in Australia, for example, deliberate communities where we don't allow zoning past a certain area, then it's much easier for the community to literally build into the physical infrastructure of the city, fire breaks to keep out the fire, local internal fire hydrants for each home. There are all kinds of stuff that we can do. But again, that takes a vision. We, it can't just be, I need to get back to my home, build back the way it was, you get out of my way, FEMA, get out of my way, whoever else, right. you know, I'm going to build it back right now. So does that responsibility then, is that fall on all of us or does that fall on the, the government who essentially decides what you can build where? I mean, I think as Americans, we're inherently cynical anyway, right? Is, is the yeah. government really going to make the best choice? And the only way to make it have the best choice, honestly, is for you and I to be involved, mm -hmm. right? So if I don't go to my zoning meetings, if I don't go to my rebuilding meetings, if I don't give any opinions to an architect or to a planner, yep. then I can't complain afterwards that they've rebuilt a city that I don't recognize, right? If I'm there, I think Greenberg, Kansas is a great example. It was leveled by a level five tornado a few years back. Mm -hmm. And they took a moment, again, it took three, three or four months sat down with themselves and said, okay, we literally have nothing left. We're all in FEMA trailers from the hospitals to the schools, the, nothing's left. What do we want to do? And they said, well, look, we take climate change seriously. Let's build basically a LEED certified city, right? That's carbon neutral, that's ready for the next hurricane, that's compact with these. And they built a city that's really, really thoughtful, a resilient city, resilient not just to climate change or to hurricanes, but also to things like economic shocks or the loss of a loved one, right? Because those neighbors now are closer together, right? They were part of a process of rebuilding. So even the rebuilding process itself helped people in the community feel that sense of connection and bonds. Where was that? What, what community? I believe it was Greenberg, Kansas, if I remember correctly. Kansas, okay. Um, here in, in this particular area that burned, there was a lot of mobile home parks. So you have a lot of mobile homes that were literally right on top of each other. Those tend to go up really, really fast in a fire. Um, so a lot of these parks were essentially just completely destroyed and damaged. A lot of the families within these two towns were Hispanic. I think the school district, the superintendent we talked to, he said 40 to 45 percent of their families in their school district lost everything. And wow. a lot of them, again, Hispanic, so maybe they're not here legally, and they're not asking for help. They are scared to death to ask for help. And there's probably some mistrust, too, there with the government. Look, ICE hasn't exactly been a welcoming neighbor over the past three and right. three quarters years. It's really created a situation where people who maybe not even be illegal, but maybe afraid of going out without a driver's license and getting put in jail, as happens this a number of times over this past few years, yeah. right? Getting accused of not being citizens, uh, not to mention they are undocumented residents right now, whether they're working for the economy, the agricultural economy in Oregon or for the construction firms there, right? So th this is a huge problem. And again, if the community and the authorities can't speak to each other, if there isn't trust there, you really can't even 
start the process then, right? There's no way to get from them, well, what would it look like to you? How would a safer, more resilient community be in your eyes if they won't speak to you out of fear that you're going to arrest them or put their mm -hmm. children away or separate them from their family members, right? So this is a huge thing. I mean, you know, it, these are the systems level challenges that we face in resilience. That is to say, we've created systems and institutions that make it much harder for us to trust the government, not just because of one pres president or one regime, but right, if we give the impression to a community that they're not welcome, if we give the impression, right, that we're looking out to cause trouble for them, then they're really not going to show up at those zoning board meetings or school board meetings. No. They're not going to ask, for example, for ESL classes for training or for shadows for their kids with learning disabilities, right? So those are all the places where our, we should feel comfortable, right, asking for things that we need, right? Yeah. If my child needs a, a shadow in school or if I need ESL assimilation classes, I should be able to get those, right, and not have to worry that a request will trigger some kind of negative outcome. And these families, the parents, a lot of them are agricultural workers. We need them. We need them in this community. And so I certainly don't want to see them going anywhere. I want them to stay right here. Um, the other the other communities, Hispanic communities that are doing a little bit better, we've seen in the last few days, really pulling them up and supporting some of these families. So that is, you know, that's a nice thing to see. And that's another thing that we're seeing here, obviously, and I'm sure you know this firsthand, donations come in like crazy. Just, yes. you know, uh, local temporary evacuation shelters are getting inundated with donations to the point where they're like, not now. I asked Jeff this question, is there a concern that you get too many right in the beginning? Is there is there a worry that that's an issue that we need to be thinking down the road? Yeah, it's often too many and the wrong thing. Right. Right. So when we worked, we worked in India, for example, uh, India, of course, is a very tropical climate. It's very, very warm there. This was in Chennai, actually the 2004 tsunami there. Uh -huh. And people were sending sweaters from right. Europe, sweaters, you know, like wool sweaters. So you have piles of useless garbage now that they've got on top of the debris they already had, on top of the challenges they had. Now they have to get rid of that. Exactly. So that's, again, we're creating that disaster. That's on us when we do the kind of stuff. So my advice always to people is send cash to trusted NGOs, churches, mosques, and synagogues. Send cash. Those local groups will know best which families need that money and how it will be spent. Better than sending, again, my old shoes or a, you know, a pile of books. If they ask for those things, if they ask for children's books or toys, great, do what they, do what they say. But typically, for us as outsiders, the easiest and most efficacious way to help out post-shock is to send a group like the Red Cross or local church, Salvation Army, marked for this Oregon fire, yeah. you know, a check for $500 or whatever you can do. Yeah, and again, you know, it's just one of those where we all know there's a need right now, but as you've just talked about over the last 20 minutes, this this is a long haul. We've got to we've got to be in this for the long haul because we could be taking care of this community for a really long time until they are truly in some sort of stable form of housing. Not to mention that it's very likely there'll be other fires between now and the time that this community gets stabilized. So meaning it won't just be this community that needs help. Right. It'll be this others. community recovering from the first disaster, but the other ones nearby. And again, this is going to be the problem when, with climate change as we get hotter and drier in places like California and Oregon. And of course, we also have this broader question of land management, uh, question of zoning. So those are, again, problems that we've created for ourselves. We have to think through as a society, what do we want to do? You know, Right now, we have communities that were on the coast in Louisiana pulling back places like um, Homa, for example, pulling back two or three miles just to make sure that they'll be here in 20 years. So it's it's a tough conversation to have. Maybe part of the conversation is 
when we have communities that are in very rural remote areas or people are allowed to build homes very far from city centers, we are making it harder for them to get through a shock and more expensive for us as a society to handle those shocks in the future. Mm -hmm. So again, having no, no zoning essentially, right, when we build these cities, that's not a resilient outcome right there. So yeah, it's not just a question of thinking about this one community and the and things they'll be getting. It's how do we build communities near them that will also be facing fires in the next few years that will not require us to be sending money and checks or, or old books right every to every half year. So this particular fire here in our region where it burned, it burned through uh, a few jurisdictions and, and municipalities. So you've got three, four different towns where there's damage, some more severe than others. And then all of these towns live in Jackson County. So we've got lots of different levels of government, city government, county government, state government. At what point do we all have to work together? I'm assuming, right? Like you can't just say- Ideally about two months ago, I mean, <laughs> even before this began, <laughs> yeah, right? you wanna make sure that city, city, county, state, and federal officials are talking, right? About procedures, about the process. You know, the old joke is you don't hand someone a business card during the fire. Not gonna be very helpful at that moment, right? You wanna make sure that people in the federal emergency management know local disaster planners in the region. You wanna ensure that mayors know who they should be talking to. Yeah. Terms of getting advice on how to rebuild these cities. So that, that should have been already. In other words, you really should have had those tight con connections between decision makers, experts, and residents. So what we often study in my lab as well is, who will give advice in the next few months, right? Okay. So as Oregon cities, California cities try to rebuild, you know, oftentimes it's a very specific type of outside planner, maybe an engineer or a city planner, which you really want as as broad a coalition of voices as you can get in that moment. You want local residents to be on there, no matter what else things they have to go through. They're still, you know, faxing to FEMA every day, asking for that help. They're getting to court to fight with their insurance company. You also want them in that, whatever it is, yeah. local schoolroom, talking with architects, planners, city, county, and state managers about what's the vision they have, Otherwise, and this is the most common and bad outcome, someone will pluck an existing plan off the shelf and say, number 64, this is a number 64, we're good to go. But this happens all the time. If, if there isn't feedback, if there isn't connections with the people in the community, the government can say, well, look, we don't know what they want. They don't know what they want. We're good. We have a plan already, right? Our experts made this. We don't want that because that might mean that the plan that Oregon community A is getting was really designed for California city B. Right? And it's got nothing in common. Alternatively, maybe again, we don't want to rebuild according to the plan we had 10 or 15 years ago, which might be as old as some of these plans are. Maybe we've got a new vision, right? Whether it's you know solar panels or geothermal or wind power, or again, spacious housing that's more coordinated and cooperative, whatever that vision is, if we don't have that conversation from the bottom up, from people in the community, mm -hmm. they're just gonna pull some top-down nonsense out of there. And this is really the disasters that we've seen. The second disaster after the first disaster is some outside expert comes in and says, you know what, I've seen this before, I got this, this is number 64. That's not what you want happening. The experts should shut up, sit down in a room of locals and just listen. And really those kind of plans, when they're built up for the locals, those go really well. Amazing, so we really do all, even those folks, I think you just mentioned this, even those who have lost everything, they really, we need to have, we all need to have um, a piece of this fight. We all need to have our voice in, the planning stages, the next few stages in the next few months to a year. That's right. There, there's there's no atheist in a foxhole. Right, this moment when there's so much space to on a blank mm -hmm. canvas, right, of a city, uh, whether it's individual house decisions or again city and zoning decisions or broader questions about sprawl. Those are the questions the community has. So maybe the community wants that. That's their choice, as long as they now can see the costs. Right, if the city can see the costs for having a sprawl-based approach 
and they want to build that again. That's how, and that's on them. Maybe they didn't know it until now. Mm-hmm. They didn't think about it, right? The, the likelihood of a fire seemed very small, right? And those homes that were isolated and very far from, again, public services, infrastructure, electricity lines, maybe they didn't mind. Maybe they, they'll mind now, right? right? And the city should be talking with them and saying, okay, great. How do we have your role? What's your role in a compact city, right? That's going to be more resilient to these fires in the future. A thousand percent. Um, I'm actually talking with a representative from FEMA later. We're, we're running a, a half hour special talking with some local agencies, really just in an effort to find help, get resources to these displaced families. So I am talking to FEMA. I want to ask you, what should I be asking them as a media representative? Sure. I would say start talking about, you know, to whom are they accountable? How many locals can they name beyond the mayor? right, or, or the county level supervisor they've been assigned to. In other words, do they actually know the community there, right? Do they know people on the ground? Have they spent time there, right? Are they going to be there for a day or a week? Are these local regional representatives that are based in California? Right. Are they going to be based in Oregon? Um, you know, how are they going to handle questions of contracts? How are they going to handle questions when there's a huge demand over the next few years for new houses? How are they going to handle the massive spikes that will come in housing costs and things? How will they handle broader questions of insurance for the future? Will FEMA be helping, for example, to get fire insurance for individuals who may be priced out now after these most recent fires. I would ask questions about building it back better, right? Are they, what, what is the vision they have for these communities? Is it just building back the hospital or the road or that bridge exactly as it was? Or is there a plan to incorporate the newest technologies, the new, newest resilient approaches in that? Are they still using a playbook from the 1960s or now we, are we in the 21st century? Right. I think you should do this interview with FEMA. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's, that's really good stuff. Um, I, I kind of do want to wrap up a little bit. I just, I feel like you, you may have already answered this, but the major mistakes in rebuilding, it sounds like, is when communities go too fast and they don't talk to each other. And we can't, as a community, whether you've been displaced or your home is still standing, we can't, we can't rely on, I mean, even though the Salvation Army here is fantastic, we can't just say, they're going to save us, they're going to take care of me. We cannot do that. Exactly. That's right. The best uh, recoveries that people really want to be in. And by the way, you can imagine a recovery that you're in, but you don't really want to be there. Right. Again, the city goes in a direction or goes rebuilt the way it was. Right. So the best recoveries that we want to be in are ones that we've helped shape. Right. Literally, given our advice, our time, our maybe blood, sweat and tears Mm -hmm. to fight with outsiders or experts and tell them the vision we have is the following. Right. And by the way, we find a lot of survivors like Latoya Cantrell in New Orleans. They became government representatives, actually. They got so frustrated in the process of rebuilding. Right. She went from being a local member on the council to being the mayor. She really wanted to have a voice. Right. In that long term question of what kind of post-disaster city do we want to live in and build? It's only going to be possible if, if the people involved hear our voices. If we all hunker down and I just get my own stuff done, fight with the insurance company, fight with the government, you know, get my kid back in school, that really will not create a, re- a recovery that I want to be in in the long term. Can you talk at all about those families? I, I, know, I know this for these two towns, the school district there, they're trying so hard to get these kids um, back into some sort of like online comprehensive learning as soon as possible to get back to some sort of normalcy for the children. I mean, their lives have been turned upside down just in general from this year and now this, they don't have anything. So is that super critical too for for families, for the kids to get back into some routine? 
yes, both for, for families and for the kids themselves, mm -hmm. having a schedule is so important, okay. right? What disasters do is they throw us out of a sense of normalcy and rhythm, right? So even if it's a, a small thing, right? Someone gets sick in your family, they have to go to the hospital now, which means you can't pick up the, I mean, even right. those small disruptions of our rhythm, we can feel them. So imagine your home is gone now, right? The school is gone now, your, maybe your business, your job is gone, you're bankrupt, almost bankrupt. So having children feel that there is a, a system in place that wants them there and takes care of them, mm -hmm. whether that's a school teacher online or face-to-face, -face, whatever we can do during COVID-19, that's really critical. And by the way, many cities that have done well, they immediately reopen the schools. Even before they get you know, the hospitals running, before they get everything else running again, they get the schools running. Because again, if you're a parent yeah. and you've got to spend most of your time worrying, how is my kid doing, right? We're in a, a post-apocalyptic area, living in a FEMA trailer. They've got nothing to do with The toys are all gone. Their friends are scattered, right? I've got to worry about my kids. I can't work either, right? So especially for the parents as well, having children who feel engaged, who are part of a community, whether it's, a, an, again, an online school or something that's more face-to-face, more -face, that is such a critical part of the rebuilding process. Okay, good to know. Are there resources for all of us? Again, those who haven't lost anything, those who've lost everything, is there any place we can go for a sense to learn more? Um, even for me, just in the media, journalists, like is there, is there a spot we can go to learn more? Absolutely. Yeah. So the National Academies of Science, the NAS, mm -hmm. has published a series of guides, actually, post-disaster rebuilding guides. And I can send you a link after this conversation. That'd be great. And that literally goes through and says, if you're a local planner, if you're a school member, if you're a resident, here are things you should be keeping in mind as you rebuild. And that, that was built by people who've been through fires and disasters and shocks and tornadoes, along with experts who studied them from the other side. And that really was a cooperative, I was actually in this process at the National Academies of Science, trying to think through how do we give advice, right? Because this won't be a one-time event, unfortunately, whether it's Hurricane Katrina or it's the new hurricanes or the fires in California and Oregon, these will be our normalcy yeah. as life goes on. So we really need to have a guide. So yes, absolutely, there are plenty of free resources for people. The other thing I forgot to mention earlier, by the way, FEMA should be asked about is scams. This is a really bad time, right? Because people are so vulnerable and they're really desperate right now. And, and again, someone might come along and promise, I'm a lawyer, I, I'll guarantee I'm gonna get you, you know, whatever it is, $100,000 within a week. Or roofers come along all the time, by the way, now as well, or builders and say, look, just put on $40,000, I'll get my guys here, and they'll come for a day and they'll, and they'll be out of town and they'll never find them again. So this is also a time to be unfortunate on our guard. Yeah. As we know, the good comes out of people now, but also the bad comes out of people as well. So to be Big on time. your guard against those individuals who are unfortunately looking for victims right now. Yeah, for sure. So um, again, NAS is a place to get those series of guides if you're wanting to look at exactly. those. Okay. Yes. Whew. Daniel, this planet is lucky to have you. <laughs> We're lucky to have you. I'm lucky to be on it. Seriously. <laughs> um, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full kind of girl. I have been my entire life. Is there hope here? Is there hope? You got to tell me there's, there's some oh, yeah. hope. Okay. Oh yeah. And, and, and that comes again. That's the, that's the great part about this process, mm -hmm. right? Where people feel that sense of belonging, feel that sense of connection. We're, we, of course we, we grieve together right now, yeah. right? We're grieving for all kinds of stuff, but we're also going to celebrate together, right? As those really small milestones come, right? All that debris is off the ground, right? The first grass is coming back. Some tre trees are going to bloom again, right? We're going to have nice, cool indoor housing that's permanent pretty soon. As those milestones come through right. and you have those neighbors and community to celebrate with, nothing feels better, right? Than having that sense 
sense of this is where I belong. This is my family and my community. This is the people I hang out with. That really gives us meaning. And it's funny, you know, we have so much worry about technology. We have so much worry about all kinds of stuff, you know, Facebook and all that kind of yeah. stuff. At the end of the day, right, human beings need connections, ideally face-to-face -face ones. And whether it's COVID-19 or not, uh, the process of rebuilding can be one where communities really do come together. Mm -hmm. And again, those successful communities that we've seen around the world, India, Israel, Japan, North America, they have been ones where the community as a unit as many people as possible. We're going, they're packing those halls at the Bring New Orleans Back Commissions. They're packing the halls in Sapporo, Japan. They're making sure that everyone is there and feeling not just, again, to have their voice expressed, but hey, that's my neighbor, Jim. How is he? Or there's Jennifer, how is she doing, right? That sense of being in this together, mm -hmm. that is so important. We've actually studied people who evacuated because of Fukushima, the nuclear power disasters. And the best factor for them to feel normalcy again had nothing to do with money or wealth or health, all that kind of stuff. It was about having neighbors that you felt were going through the same thing. If you believed that people around you were going through the same process, it's a huge burden off your shoulders, right? The, the, the sense of being alone and isolated is horrible, yeah. right? And when you're facing, again, that loss of a home or loss of a business or loss of a loved one, when you feel alone, it's just another crushing burden. So yes, we should have hope and optimism because precisely out of these connections, out of our neighbors, out of our community, comes what really matters in life, right? Which is that feeling of being part of something bigger than me. Yeah, those connections. We, ha we have to keep those connections strong between all of us, for sure. And just telling telling stories, right? It's like when you tell your story of how you lost everything to someone else who lost everything, boom, connection. That's right. And you know, as everyone in Oregon tells the stories to each other, right? Mm -hmm. I, I need this help, can you come with me? You know, my son or daughter's looking for this kind of toy, right? And then you get that mutual aid from each other, that yeah. informal insurance, that is really possible building, even before the house goes back up again, right? Just the recognition that there are people out there who care, uh, all the donations that are coming in, right? The phone calls, uh, people worried about us. That's a sign that you know we're not alone in this process. Oh, beautiful. Uh, Daniel, once again, uh, thank you so much, Professor of Political Science, Public Policy, Urban Affairs at Northeastern University. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app or Spotify, please subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find us. You can also find it on YouTube or at ktvl.com. Again, Daniel Aldrich, thank you so much. I so appreciate you. You got back to me so quickly saying, yes, I'll do, I'll do an interview. So I so appreciate your knowledge, your brain, your insight, your advice, your guidance. I hope um, this community takes a lot of it to heart. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Daniel.